Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened... This week, the mayor of Flint, Michigan, declared a state of emergency over the amount of lead that's been in the city's drinking water. But why did it take so long? Months ago, the alarm was being sounded about this public health crisis in a famously impoverished community. And joining us to talk about it is the woman who's been beating the drum about this emergency for months, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Meanwhile, for quite a long time, Political observers have been struggling to understand what it is about Donald Trump that has made him so appealing to such a broad swath of the public. Well, for once, we are going right to the source, a self-professed Trump admirer who appreciates the Donald's message, even if he's not yet ready to actually cast a vote for him. Finally, we got debates. The GOP candidates made out in Las Vegas to talk national security this week. We'll break down who helped their own cause and who's headed for the exits. Also, there's another Democratic debate coming up on Saturday night. Saturday night. Do the Democrats even want people to watch their debates? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post's reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. We'll have all of this plus an update on the omnibus, but here's what happened first. everyone welcome to another edition of so that happened the podcast about politics i'm jason lincoln's i'm the editor of eat the press and joining me as always are these two dudes it's me arthur delaney that's right i'm gonna let you introduce yourself hi i'm zach carter see yeah that that wasn't so bad i feel pretty good about that i don't i don't know why i've been directing you all this time to be like you talk now that's stupid i'm not that kind of person. jason is so cheerful this morning audience he's so so happy so enjoy this this fun (laughs) podcast i am i am punch drunk (laughs) punch drunk on punch um so (laughs) anyway moving on so uh we have a quite quite a wonderful show for you this this time out we're going to talk to uh, a real American hero, Arthur Delaney. We're also going to talk to uh, the woman who whistle blew in Flint against all the <sighs> bad. What, one of the whistleblowers one of, the whistleblowers of the Flint water crisis. Yep, it's a it's a it's a good news take on a bad story. The good news being that there's good people in the world. So we're going to start though with an update about one of our eternally favorite stories: the omnibus budget deal. Yeah, the, the Congress not shutting down the government. And the Congress not shutting down the government. This is amazing. We've careered from crisis to crisis in the past few years. Uh, the inability of Congress to pass a budget of any kind has frequently brought out the most lycanthropic tendencies of our beloved Congress critters. They transformed in the midnight moon to weird beasts that have shut the government down and at times made it clear that they don't always know what they're doing. Let me tell you what this is... This time out? Remarkable about this timeout. Give we, us the skinny. What do we? How we? Do, how do we do? Congress uh, came just as close as in all of, of but one of the past times to actually blowing it 
and causing a government shutdown. However, apparently because of the change in personnel in the House Speaker position, none of the drama that we had in the previous years came about this time. It was just a drama-free, last-minute government funding. It's all down to the fact that our good friend John Banner, who will be on the show next week, (laughs) 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 and uh, (laughs) is gone... And Paul Ryan, bearded villain, bearded supervillain Paul Ryan, has taken over and has whipped that place into shape. Is that well, what you're saying? Uh, essentially, part. yes. I mean, the biggest reason is it's that the beard, Paul, though, is that right? John, the beard is no, the biggest it. reason that John Banner himself set this particular funding agreement in motion right before he left. And that was the whole uh, premise. So of, it was uh, John Banner. So John Banner's the guy who did it. Well, yeah, but but there was plenty of opportunity for it to go wrong, and there were various factions right. in the House saying, we want this or that. But there was no, like, Planned Parenthood freak out. Yeah. The Syrian refugee piece didn't tank it. It didn't become a crisis in the way that it could have been and probably would have in previous years. And it's just things are are different, and people should... There weren't even any. There, there weren't even any, you know, sort of like bipartisan screw you over on the economy types of riders like we saw in the, the last time we did this, like with the, uh, the the decision to subsidize risky Wall Street derivatives in in 2014. This right. time, you know, the, people Democrats were expecting Republicans to push hard for a provision that would make it a lot harder for fast food workers to unionize. They were expecting uh, Republicans to try and and essentially make it illegal for the Obama Department of Labor to craft a new rule that that will require financial advisors to act in the best interests of their clients, uh, which amazingly is not actually current law. <laughs> they don't actually have to do that now. So we're expecting uh, to see the Republican Party try and try and get those things through. And if they did, they didn't put up a very, a very tough fight because the Democrats essentially won every single rider battle. The one Republican concession appears to have been on a, uh, a, a agreement to lift the crude oil export ban, but Democrats got a bunch of tax cuts that they liked for, for poor people in, in exchange. So wait, everyone saved face and everyone got something they wanted out of the deal? I mean, except for environmentalists who are going to be upset about the crude oil export ban being being lifted because that means you're going to be taking more oil out of the ground, probably, um, which means burning. You know, it's, it's sort of intention with a big international agreement on climate change. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. One, uh, one of the big headlines about and cynical attitudes toward this deal is that it's like a trillion dollars of deficit spending. And you'll see headlines saying it's it's uh, piling all these tax cuts onto the national debt. But what people should keep in mind is that while that is true, it's an extension of, for the most part, it's an extension of current tax policy. So while it is adding to the deficit, it's not doing so a whole lot more than we already were doing. It's really a continuation of, of almost everything, How, with lots of little changes. Yeah, they're, they're but the big picture is, is one of stability. Each year, Congress passes this slate of, of tax goodies, for mostly for corporations, uh, called tax extenders. They just come to be called the tax extender package. And it's kind of the worst way to do tax policy. You really don't want to have each year, maybe we're going to do this again, maybe maybe we're not. It makes right. it harder for people to plan. It keeps accountants in business. Yeah. Uh, but it also, I mean, look, a lot of these tax tax breaks are unearned giveaways. I mean, I don't see really why we need to like have a tax break for rum producers or for NASCAR or for people who have Horses, uh, but you know, 
we do this every year anyway. So to, to say that this is a, a $1 trillion or I think, I think it's like $700 billion worth of tax cuts, it's accurate, but we do, we're already doing this for the most part. And, and one thing that's different this time around is that there's an ex- extension and expansion of the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, which are these are tax credits for poor people. This is stuff Democrats wanted and Republicans <clears throat> are amenable to yeah. and agreed to do. And they basically went along with it. As and, someone who was famously mugged outside a calculator store. Zach can no, Zach remember. <laughs> I, I think it's important. I do think it's important to keep accountants off the streets so they do not form roving violent gangs. We all know what it's true. You kind of need. We all know what they're capable. You of. need the tax extenders. It's sort of like a skate park for accountants. So okay, let me give you sort of an update about my current mood. I'm sort of chill as fuck about this. Am I crazy? You didn't have to curse. Look, it's actually... Did you not hear the start of this podcast? The start of this podcast, it says it contains explicit language, and so far there's been no explicit language on this podcast. So now there has But now there has. Now we've fulfilled the promise. I don't don't make the choice. The The voice at the start of the podcast makes that choice for us. If we have that disclaimer, we have to cuss. (laughs) <laughs> I want to apologize to the voice at the start of the podcast. We respect you and worship you. So, Let's yeah, th- the things are, things are good. Think, th- this is, look, the government's not going to shut down. The stupid crap that went in there is the stupid crap that always goes in there. There's no new stupid crap. Uh, this is about as optimistic. I mean, this is about as good an outcome as you could have hoped for in, say, March, when you were looking to, to the government funding fight at the end of the year. Uh, any news on debt ceiling nonsense? Debt ceiling's all done because yes. it was raised by the this this is sort of the 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 implementation of the budget deal that John Boehner inked when he when he left office. John Boehner did the outlines and this is coloring them in. Uh, and so and but that deal eliminated the debt ceiling for the rest of the Obama presidency. So there will be no no more maybe we're going to destroy the global economy for fun fights in uh, in Congress and at least under President Barack so, Obama. And everyone's getting used to Paul Ryan's beard. Yeah, I know. It's no longer like, whoa, what's on his face? No, the it's beard now, is great. It, yeah, it looks good. The beard good. is great. I think look... Paul Ryan looks awesome. And uh, and <clears throat> Paul Ryan has faced a lot of headlines that's like, well, will he pass his big test? You guys like, look good with beards. Mm. Nah, well, I mean, the people I can't grow one, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, Jack, uh, he can't have one. Zach can't have oh, one. I'm sorry. Sorry, dude. That's really terrible. So what, what more does Congress have to do during the Obama administration? Maybe pass a highway funding bill. That's really it, right? Well, look, they've they've uh, they've actually they just did pass a highway funding bill. Oh, uh, that's right. So what's what's to do? Look, this is why Congress Speaker, This is why Paul Ryan has the easiest job. And his job yeah, is yeah. John Boehner set it up so that he would have to get through this, and that would be it. You remember when he was like, "I'll be the speaker, but only if y'all make it easy." Right? Yeah, he won. That's what they're doing. Do you think Paul Ryan will use some of the time to do things like support local music scene or? Or maybe start like a pop-up restaurant. Paul Ryan is interested in, in messing with some uh, of our income support policies. Maybe he'll oh, do why that. Why is it got to do that, man? Why is it got to do that? Uh, you could Im- imagine if Congress like took up gun control. One, one thing they didn't do in this bill, even though it seemed like an opportunity, something that was sensible and you know, not upsetting, really, for, for gun nuts, yeah. would be to lift the ban on the Centers for, for uh, Disease Control and Prevention to do research on the public health implications of gun violence. Oh, that would be so pessimistic. Even the author of this ban, who is retired from Congress, was telling us this yeah. week, like, oh, my God, I really wish they would undo that. Right. Congress could also pass an oomph. It's, yeah. It's, so it seemed like they had a moment. They could have done that. They could authorize the war that they would prefer to criticize and not uh, have any hand in directing. Yeah. Um, so there, there's lots of things Congress won't do, and you can... 
be disappointed in them for that. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we're back, and I am joined by Zachary Carter. Hello. And our good friend and editor of The Morning Email, Lauren Weber. Thanks for having me. And what is the name of The Morning Email podcast? Is it just called The Morning It's Email? just called The Morning Email podcast. That is an amazing, great branding. It you, really it really took a leap of faith there. You, you know? have a morning email. You have a podcast. It's perfect. Two great tastes. Tastes great together. <laughs> I want to start with Isn't a kind it of... one great taste that tastes great together? One and a half great taste. A great taste that, when wrapped another way, brings out flavor notes you didn't taste before. Are you glad we went? With All right, that? fine, fine. Are you okay. glad we <laughs> followed that metaphor Proceed. logically? This metaphor, you glad? this metaphor, you happy is now? Real great. Okay, okay. Um, so uh, earlier this week there was a Republican debate, and I wanted to start with like a provocative sort of question about the Republican debate, which focused on. Terrorism and foreign policy. Now, prior to the debate, Hamilton Nolan of Gawker made the case that terrorism is a sideshow. CNN came at it with the idea that terrorism was no sideshow. It was a central idea 
and that we needed to divine what these candidates were going to do about terrorism. And many of the candidates talked about the need to protect our kids. The same time this debate is happening, you have kids in California who are not, whose schools have been closed because of a, someone called in a bomb threat. And apparently this time they thought this will be the first time anyone's ever called in a bomb threat. And there's a bomb at the end of it, uh, where kids are made to feel unsafe because of the sideshow aspect of our security theater. Meanwhile, in Flint, Michigan, actual kids are being poisoned by lead because of a cascade of convoluted fuck-ups. Uh, mostly economic. Mostly economic. These are poor kids in Flint, yeah. Michigan. Yep. That's pretty bad. So are our priorities completely fucked? Look, yes. I mean, here's the thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm afraid of ISIS the way I'm afraid of a mass shooter. You know, the the San Bernardino attacks, like they're bad. There's clearly an intelligence failure there somewhere. There's also a failure of allowing someone to get a gun and shoot people up. Right. Um, and people get guns and shoot people up in America all the time. We were averaging more than one mass shooting per day in, 20, in 2015. Uh, and, and that's not the only way people die. People die through all sorts of things. You know, uh, American Airlines has been outsourcing uh, heavy airline maintenance to China for uh, for most of the year, um, where there are there's no significant regulatory oversight over how these these airlines these, these airplanes are essentially refurbished. Um, you know, if you focus on all of those things, they're pretty scary. They add up to to a whole lot of unsafety, and I. I, I, I feel like ter- terrorism is a problem. It's a, it's a real problem. I disagree with Hamilton Nolan saying it's a total sideshow. But I think the level of attention that is paid to it in these debates is way over the top. I mean, I mean, debate night, we listen to basically four and a half hours of be afraid, be, a, be very, very, very afraid, and be afraid of the brown people in particular. Well, I mean, but I also think a lot of this was on the moderation and kind of the way that this whole debate was spun. I mean, there, you know, as Zach had pointed out. This is more our, an indictment maybe of CNN. I think this is an indictment of, of CNN very much so as well, because as Zach pointed out in our live stream, we just had, you know, the Paris climate talks. Did we talk about that at all? No. This is a foreign policy debate. Nope. Didn't talk about that. All we did was ask, you know, kind of fear-mongering, leading questions. They asked Ben Carson, would you kill children? I mean, what what are these questions? It was what, remarkable. What, they wanted to make sure Ben Carson what? had the stomach to kill children. To kill children. <laughs> you used to save children. Can you kill them now? That literally was the question. I don't understand. So, I, I mean, I also think this kind of goes to show that as we get further in the debate season, people are caring less and less and probably tuning in less and less. And in order to get the viewership as high as it's been— You've got to be like terrorism in the bright lights of the CNN ad logo. Well, it's also the issue. I mean, uh, people don't like to say this, but uh, it's it's the issue that that is now one of the top issues, if not the top issue for the American electorate in the 2016 election, which is largely because the economy has improved to the point where the economy is no no longer the top issue. The Federal Reserve may may do us all a favor and and wreck the economy so that foreign policy (laughs) (laughs) descends here uh, on the list of priorities. But but for now, at least the economy has improved to the point where terrorism is, is is, is the is the worst problem, and you can you can sort of see this in the way the questions are phrased, right? When right. they say the San Bernardino attacks, where fourteen people are killed, is the worst terrorist attack on American soil since September 11th. It's true, fourteen is a lot less than three thousand. Um, not not to diminish the importance of those fourteen lives that were lost, but a lot of people die in America every day from gun violence, um, from 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 all sorts of other things, from cancer, from heart disease. I mean, we don't talk about how heart disease and and science research into solving major diseases. God, I'd love a public health debate. Right. That would be so we, great. We don't talk about public health as, as, as a national security issue, right? Uh, we could. We don't. Um, so so I, 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 I feel like essentially 
moderators in, in this debate, it's, it's not just moderators, but I'll change subjects here, uh, directions here for a second, but uh, it's not just it's not just moderators, but the Republican Party has historically done really well when people are afraid. They, they won the 2004 election by making everybody really, really afraid, even though George W. Bush was underwater on his approval ratings. So so Republicans get hawkish when people get kind of scared. So things like San Bernardino, when the economy is doing relatively well, that's that's the best angle. And so the, I think ultimately this type of debate ends up helping the Republican Party and all the candidates on stage. Um but I, I kind of want to hear what you guys think about who, you know, who did who did the best tonight. Or oh. well, I, I just gave away the time. We're, we're recording this. Who right did the, the best this week? You mean <laughs> yeah. did the best this week? Don't don't bring Arthur Delaney in here. All mad. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, the guy who's doing best overall in the campaign of late, I think right now is Ted Cruz. And I think that one of the things Ted Cruz is doing right is the extent to which his campaign is succeeding. He isn't over reliant on debates to get him that big bounce. Uh, he's still taking some chances at the debates and still maybe fucking up a little bit. He's doing enough at the debates to get by, but it's not his bread and butter and it's fine. You know, Ted Cruz just won the endorsement of Bob Vanderplatz, the guy who runs the family leader organization in Iowa. He's dead for Iowa. Yeah. He's an influential kingmaker in presidential politics in Iowa. He's back to the last two eventual caucus winners, although he did have to wait for those returns on Santorum to come in awfully late. Um, but if you want to restrict it just to uh, tonight's... <laughs> Sorry, Arthur. If you want to just restrict it to this week's debate, uh, I don't know. I have, a, I, have a tough, I have a tough call. I think that probably uh, Marco Rubio was the most buffeted uh, and uh, Jeb probably the least. I think that Jeb... Bush, crazily enough, had a little bit of a free-flowing debate and did okay in his tete-a-tete against Donald Trump. I thought Rand Paul Trump. also did okay. Yeah, I, I mean, he still is, you know, a, a dying Rand Paul breed, doing, yeah. Rand Paul doing, doesn't matter because he's not going to win, but I thought he did pretty well. I thought Ben Carson, this the is closer, just like the saddest showing of the, all time. Yes. The closer Rand Paul gets to his strengths, though, the more he takes himself out of the running. Now he's just the guy who's taking him away further and further away from the bases. I don't want to say Jeb won tonight's debate. No. Uh, I think that... I think I'm think i holding my fire on you here. I think tonight... I think tonight it was more interesting to see Ben Carson not come up with anything that remotely stabilized his position. Cruz held serve, demonstrated he deserves to be toward the center of the table. Fiorina totally disappeared. Fiorina totally disappeared. But what do you guys think? Go ahead, come at me. I was that was All not right. a courageous answer. So look, I did not keep it a hundred. I, I came into this debate seeing seeing essentially Donald Trump as a unstoppable um, pole juggernaut who, after proposing a horrible fascist anti-Muslim policy, uh, saw his poll numbers go go, go way high. I mean, we we've been saying people who have been nationally. Saying, Nationally, and people have been saying, "Look, Trump. Trump only has a plurality. He's he's not getting close to fifty percent. Well, he's getting pretty close. There are polls that he's in thirty eight in some in some polls, and others he's above forty. He's getting pretty close. And the nastier he gets, the higher his numbers go. Um, the place where he is vulnerable, the the place where this th- this this momentum could be stopped is Iowa. If he takes a big loss in Iowa, it's possible that p- that voters who support Trump might switch to this other person who they think maybe is cool, but who they hadn't thought too much about." The person who's, who's been rising in Iowa was Ted Cruz. So to me tonight, the question is whether Ted Cruz could really disrupt Donald Trump's momentum and, and maintain his hold in some polls on the lead in Iowa. There are other polls in which Trump is, is ahead in Iowa. Uh, and I felt like Cruz did okay. He did okay. 
I felt like Trump actually had his best performance since the first debate performance. I felt like his, you know, I know you guys were, were, were hot on, on Jeb Bush tonight, but I thought Trump just totally smacked him down multiple times. And I thought he looked tough. And I, look, I find the guy revolting. He's a fascist demagogue. But there's an element of the Republican Party that clearly responds to fascist demagoguery. And I, I, I felt like Trump really played to that base tonight. Didn't didn't take any any real licks. Cruz looked bad at some points. He looked good when he was going after Rubio, even though he was lying about his own immigration plan. It seemed like he he took he took some real he took some real shots at Rubio and, and won that. Uh, but but for me, it kind of it kind of it kind of looked like Trump maybe had the edge. But it, if if he didn't, it was really really close. It seemed to me like the, the conversation still has to be about Trump and Cruz after this. I, I just, agree. I didn't feel like. Cruz hit it out of the ballpark. I felt like Cruz needed to have a better debate performance than he did. I don't feel like he came off as more likable, which I think is a big issue that he struggles with and that I think would have done him large favors if he could have fixed. I don't think that he totally came away unscathed in the Rubio conversation. I think it's hard to go after the lovable young star who, you know, always walks onto the stage with a smile on his face and everybody usually goes gaga for, you know, to throw pot shots at Rubio is a, a bit of a dangerous game. And I like Simon Cowell taking on a boy band. I'm basically yeah. that's basically how that was. And I just I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of expected Cruz to kind of walk away with the head held higher after that debate. And I didn't I didn't really see the fire that I thought he needs to really make this Iowa play that everybody's talking about. We um, we heard from Chris Christie uh, um, and <laughs> what we heard from Chris oh, Christie uh, was a mix of this kind of shtick he's worked up that no one cares about congressional subcommittees. We need guys to make clear decisions, blah, blah, it's blah. A, it's an anti I do that, and you guys in the Senate don't do that. And I was like, okay, well, Chris Christie, cool, cool. That sounds great. So um, give us an example of like a quick uh, judgment call you'd make, a decision you'd make on the fly. Well, um, okay, one thing I do is if a Russian plane violated a no-fly fly zone, i definitely shoot it down. Definitely. And it's like, okay, okay so, so, now, side effects so, now we're, so now we're at war with Russia. Now we're at war with Russia. Um, nuclear power. Um, could that have been prevented? Nope. Sorry. Sorry. You know, Chris Christie, I had to do it. It's a no fly. I have to, I'm a prosecutor. No yeah. I'm a prosecutor. You got to shoot down the plane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I regret. I regret everyone dying, but I, we needed to draw the line right <laughs> then and there. It wasn't just Christie, though. It was. It was also John Kasich saying that that Russia really needed to get punched in the nose. And I, I feel like you know, for for all the talk we've had about about <laughs> about how how bad it makes America look when we talk shit about Muslims all the time, thanks to Donald Trump's awful anti anti Muslim Islamophobic bullshit. This this kind of talk is also damaging. This this kind of talk makes makes America's allies be like, and even our enemies, who we need, like, to be clear, we need Russia's help to defeat ISIS. We need that right now. Yeah. Uh, saying saying like, yeah, yeah, we totally declare war on you for like whatever. That's that's crazy. That just is right. so counterproductive, and it's so it's reckless. what Turkey just did that nearly kiboshed so the whole thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy, and that brings up my next question. Who's done? He was at the undercard debate. That's the grave. That's the grave as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I That's think... That's like the phantom zone. That's where the shadows go to molder. Everybody... And let him back. Everybody in the undercard debate is gone. I mean, so that's Santorum. That's Pataki. That's Lindsey Graham. That's... Right. 
who's the last one? Huckabee. They yeah. should. They're all forced, gone. They should be forced I think to we, wander we have, the we earth. We have not talked about how awful the undercard debate was in terms of raw Islamophobia, but let's just say I, it's just terrible. At the mouth awful. I think Fiorina had a terrible performance tonight. I feel like this was the last of her you know, yep. debate bum end, performance. We've been shining. waiting. Fiorina on pure passion got herself out of the undercard debate up to the big table, and we've been waiting for her to break out with that idea that's gonna like. Can I say something about Carly Fiorina that nobody cares about? She never comes out with it. She never comes out. Oh gosh, are we going to have a discussion about her past again? Multiple times during the debate, we're going to have a discussion about her past. Multiple times, she she said she's tired of the lack of accountability in Washington D.C. Carly Fiorina, after driving her company into the ground, here we go, got paid forty million dollars to get fired by the board. She got forty million dollars. That's a kind of accountability, right? We've accounted for you, and here's some money. I just say they've moved past it. It takes so much. Hutzpah for someone to run for president after getting. I know. And to, I just. She she's was rated the 16th worst CEO of all time by Portfolio It's going to result in some great speaking deals for her. You know, going forward. Yep. And probably a book. Carly oh, Fiori- definitely a book. Yeah. Carly Fiorina kept saying that she'll rebuild the Sixth Fleet, but I think she'll just merge it with a shittier fleet. Um, Rand Paul. Ooh, need some ice. Rand Paul, I think I've already sort of hinted at it. He, he's he's kind of gone back to the Paul classic. He's no longer new coach. There were some crazy Paul. supporters for him in the audience. Yeah, Did you hear they, that? They come. They They're come. close they come. to the mic, I think. It's an extent, yeah. it's an extent to <laughs> which come. he's gotten back to that, to that playing field, but... Uh, you know, I think he articulately, what can I say? Rand Paul, when he talks about foreign policy that isn't, when he talks about a foreign policy that's not some kind of heavy-handed nonsense, be it neoconservatism or neo-Wilsonianism, Rand Paul sounds clearest and best, and it's also something that nobody buys. Nobody's going to vote for him. He's done. I mean, this is, it's silly I, that he's even on the stage. I'm not even he talking, shouldn't have been up there. I'm not even talking about his party not buying it. Literally, Washington doesn't buy it. Literally, Washington wavers between one kind of stupid, crazy, heavy-handed, mistake-laden foreign policy decision Versus another. And then guys like Joe Scarborough and Ron Fournier say, oh, well, it's tough decisions. They're making tough decisions. But look, here, here's like, the thing. Yeah, we just Joe Scarborough the, right the, mo- the most reasonable things that were said about foreign policy tonight were said by Rand Paul. And I hate to say this. It just, it hurts. It hurts me deep inside to say this. And by Donald Trump. What? What? Yeah. What? What? No. Whoa. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. What? Oh, my God. What did happened. you say? So what? This, is what? When, this is when both of them said that it would be a mistake to remove Bashar al-Assad from power right now. And we should prioritize the fight against ISIS over the fight against Assad. That seems like a pretty reasonable thing to say to me. Uh, relative to everything else that was that was coming out on st- uh, fr- from, I mean, from that stage, he also said that we are going to shut down parts of the internet. So, like, I you know, forgive Look, me I'm not, if I wasn't <laughs> taking his word. I'm not saying the guy is a smart guy. I'm not saying that he's a he would be a, he's a fascist demagogue. Okay, <laughs> you know, but terrible. he's wildly successful. But look, but he, but 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 look, the idea. The idea that we're going to win a two pronged war in the Middle East against both Assad and ISIS without troops on the ground. This is madness, or with or with Lindsey Graham's fantasy twenty thousand troops on the ground, which we're somehow going to get like you know with ninety percent of like a Saudi Turkish Arabia force. and Turkish in Turkey to, to fight for us. Uh, th- th- this is this is madness. Look, e- e- either you, you you have to prioritize at some point, and the idea that that Assad is a bigger threat to the United States interests than ISIS seems wrong at the moment. Um, so look, if, we've, if, we, if we're deciding we want to take out ISIS, Assad's against ISIS. You know, we take out we start taking out Assad. There things get things get to be pretty hairy there. There's Iran, there's Russia, there's all sorts of business there that gets ugly. It's uh, hard. So, and so, so frankly, that in the was world today. And, and bo- both Rand Paul and and Donald Trump 
I hate to say it, acknowledge that. And th- that, that was more reasonable than anything that had been said uh, by right. anybody else over the course of the evening. everybody we are back donald trump's rise in uh the republican field and in national polls has been greeted by people like me with some sort of starry-eyed wonder how did this happen where does a man like this come from how does he capture the imagination so rather than con- me continuing to fumble with these ideas we're inviting somebody who actually has a feel and a sense for the appeal of donald trump and is, I dare say, a fan. Uh, joining me, Arthur Delaney. Arthur Delaney, not the person I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but on the phone right now from Central Florida, Steve Trivet. Steve, how are you? Perfect. It's a beautiful day in the villages. It, 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 you know, I think you have the exact same temperature down there as we have up here, but it's far better to have that temperature down there than it is up here, I have to tell you. Steve, I don't want to mischaracterize you. Arthur has informed me to say, that you are uh, sort of a, an admirer of what tr- Donald Trump has done so far in this election, while not necessarily being someone who will cast a vote for him. Is that an accurate way of describing? Very accurate. I, it's almost it was, goes back to the old adage of, you know, if you, if you get a bad messenger, you don't need to kill, or you get a bad message, you don't need to kill the messenger. Well, I think we can flip-flop that in Donald Trump. You might not like the messenger, but I think his message is resonating among a lot of people in this country, and that's the reason for the uh, the firestorm you're seeing and hearing now. So what part of the Trump message is resonating with you, Steve? Uh, let's take a look at what happened yesterday in Los Angeles in New York City. One email from somebody, whether it was a kook or someone who met business or some kid who weren't out of his science test, shut down the entire school system of Los Angeles because they emailed in a bomb threat. Same bomb threat went to New York City. 
Those people chose not to close their school system. Now, nothing happened. There were no bombs found in either place. But two very distinct government officials made a very difficult decision at the time. Uh, and that's what's happened to this country right now. I think there is a, a fear in this country that Donald Trump has recognized and is tapped into. And that's what's causing uh, some of the people that are behind Donald Trump to go, you know, that man's speaking what I'm feeling. So it's not it's not that two different governments made a different decision. It's just that there is this heightened uh, vigilance over uh, terrorism. Absolutely. Trump's rise in the polls happened way before these most recent terror attacks, uh, before the one in Paris, before the one in San Bernardino. So uh, talk about what uh, is attractive to you about Trump uh, from before. Because it happened once. And all it takes is one act like that to make people go, wait a minute, I didn't think this could happen in this country, but it did happen in this country. And it's happening all over the world. I think Donald Trump would even admit that that his poll standing is is benefiting greatly from a sort of climate of fear that's out there. But there's something that's not exactly Churchillian about the way Donald Trump responds to fear. There's no sort of keep calm and carry on aspect to what he does. He wants to prevent Muslim Americans from reentering the country. It's it's weird to me because I see him responding to something that's very salient in the public mind, but I don't necessarily understand his response to be a virtuous one. It may not be. It may not be. And, it, and at first glance, it's not virtuous. But it is being built on something that is very, very real. Uh, you know, for those people that were in the Twin Towers on 9-11, it was more than real. It was the end of their world as they knew it. It was the end of their lives. And there, we all watched it on television, fixated no matter where we were. And that's a memory that uh, no one who saw it that morning will ever forget. And is there a, a rationalization to what Trump is saying? A little bit. I'm sorry. The uh, Yes, this country was built on immigration, but it was built under different laws and different times and different situations than it's being built now. Uh, you know, there are three major things that people are worried about, factors in this country right now. It's the economy, national defense, and immigration. And there's a thread running through all three of those things that are tied to, you know, people dying in restaurants and office buildings and pizza joints and football stadiums and, you know, Christmas parties. And they're all tied together, and that's a concern for a lot of people. With the, the particulars of, of Trump's economic message, what do they, how does that resonate with you? There's a concern about the country as far as jobs go, as far as people being able to make a living go. And I, I speak as a grandfather of eight children raising an age from college age down to elementary school age, and I'm concerned about their future. The business climate in this country right now is a little shaky. Uh, as far as what my grandchildren will be facing when they go out into the world to find a job. So, uh, Steve, you, you, told me, you told me before that uh, you, know, you were able to 
get a job pretty easily and, and not be under a mountain of debt after college. But you well, absolutely. And, but for your daughters, you know, you've had to basically throw your retirement savings at their education, and they've they've still got that. And you you think that this is this is what shows how the country's changed, and you're worried it'll be even more of a challenge for oh, your absolutely. grandchildren. Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, I went to I went to college. I was going to change the world as a journalist, whether I did or didn't. I, that remains to be seen. Uh, both of my daughters became. Uh, Two of my daughters became educators. They are changing the world in their own little way, day by day, touching students' lives. Now, my grandchildren, uh, one is a freshman in college, uh, one who just graduated from college, came out with a master's student debt, and he was lucky enough to get a job, but it's not a, a high-paying job for, what, uh, for the money he spent to get his college education. People are starting their lives saddled in debt already is not uh, good for their future. It's been my sense that this is the thing that uh, really informs your view of what the American economy looks like right now, that it's something that's it's gotten more difficult, even though your daughters still are having you know great careers and families and they're able to do things they love, it's it's not as easy as it ought to be. Well, I, you know, it was easier for me than it was for them. It's been easier for them than I fear it's going to be for their children. And so when there's a terrorist attack or a threat against a school, do you feel like at the same time as economically it's not as easy, it's it's like just not as safe either? Do you see these things happening at the you know in tandem? Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, uh, you guys are younger than I am. I'm going to guess by it quite a bit. Back when I was in school during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we had crawl under your desk air raid drills. Now wait a minute. John Kennedy and Khrushchev got into uh, you know the the contest of whether there's going to be missiles in Cuba or not. Right. Well, now, now that's pretty scary. You you were uh, jumping under your desks. I mean, today what kids do is everyone goes into the closet and they lock the door. But in in uh, both your childhood and uh, with what kids have to do now, there's there's this existential threat out there. Is is it really that different? Uh, yes, it is because no missiles fell on the United States. Mm-hmm. There is terrorism in the United States today. I see in the form of people who in a what I think is a very very peaceful religion and have twisted it to their fit their own means, and they have sworn if we do not convert to their twisted form of their religion, they're going to kill us. And they have killed us. Well, let me ask you, to get back to uh, one of the places where we started off, Trump's message is resonating with you, but you may not cast a vote for him. Is there anyone in the field who has, let's say, responded to what Trump has done as a candidate and transformed that into something you could uh, cast a ballot for? Right now, I would not know who to vote for. Again, I'm going to reserve judgment till the deal is actually manageable. Uh, you know, watching the debate last night, uh, that's that's too many people trying to talk at the same time, and not enough time to actually go into the specifics of what their plans are. You know, Trump says we're going to bomb them back to the Stone Age, and then outside of that, there's not a lot of other big plans of what people might do or could do or will do because, uh, you know. 
there's too many people involved right now. Uh, it's, I say, this reason I think it debates right now, especially with that many people on the stage, everybody talking at the same time, you get no clear understanding of what's going on. I'd like to, I'm going to be, I'm going to pay a lot more attention when it's down to two or three, or even when it's down to just a Republican and a Democrat. Uh, at, at at this point, had you, have you heard anything that speaks to the economics of what you're talking about, making college more affordable, anything like that? No. No, I haven't. <laughs> I, I'm hearing a lot of white noise. I, you know, and then uh, on the Democratic side, you're not hearing anything. You know, they schedule their debates and nobody watches. Yeah, yeah they're on, is, they're, their debates are on Saturdays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is that is among the dumber things I've seen happen in an election cycle is the Democrats putting their debates on Saturdays when and this one's going to be a, in the middle of Christmas season when no one's going to be watching except uh, us suckers. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you know that that that's almost a you know if you want to invoke every conspiracy theory that's ever been brought up since time began, we don't want to talk when anybody's listening. Uh, well, all right, Steve Trivet from Central Florida. Uh, we're going to leave it there, uh, but we'll check back in with you to find out if you're still a fan of what Trump's doing or if you've alighted on another candidate who deserves your vote. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful time to talk about everything. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hello, we are back, and uh, joining me in the studio is my colleague Arthur Delaney. Hello. Who you know. Uh, this week, at presidential debates, and inspired by the actions taken by California school districts, the nation enjoyed an esoteric conversation on how best to keep our children safe. And it would be a fun philosophical exercise were it not for the fact that at the same time, the children of Flint, Michigan, have been endangered. And they've been endangered for quite a while. And that specific danger is an unsafe level of lead in the local drinking water. This is, had been known about for a few months, but it wasn't until this week the public pressure finally led Flint's mayor, Karen Weaver, to declare a state of emergency. It's a very harrowing look about how most of this hot talk about keeping our children safe doesn't really amount to a hill of beans, especially for kids in impoverished communities. But we are very happy today to be joined by the real deal heroine of the hour, Flint pediatrician, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who first documented what was happening with the water in Flint and then steadfastly refused to just let it go. Dr. Hanna-Atisha, we'll go with, as you say, Dr. Mona from now on. Yes, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I imagine you were probably beating off all the requests to be on Meet the Press to, to join totally, us. Totally, but you guys, you guys were a totally priority. Thank you. We appreciate that a, a lot. I want to just back out a little bit before we close in 
on Flint? Because I think that probably a, there are a lot of people who think that lead poisoning is a, a thing we left in the past. Um, Absolutely. And I want to just remind everybody why it was that we once took lead poisoning so seriously. Um, what are some of the physiological effects of lead poisoning in children? So, yeah, lead poisoning is a well-known potent neurotoxin. So we've known about lead poisoning for decades, and that's why we got rid of lead from paint. We got rid of lead from gasoline. Um, so the rates of lead poisoning have been going down steadily for the last 30 years as a nation. Um, and we are been so aggressive about this because of what it can do to the whole life course trajectory of a child. Um, because it's a neurotoxin, it affects your brain, it affects your development, it drops your IQ. So even going up from one to four micrograms per deciliter, which is above the elevated level of five, will drop your IQ about four points. Um, it also causes problems with behavior, um, increases the incidence or likelihood of violent offenses, aggressive behavior, um, and also causes a host of other medical problems um, from in terms of your blood, your immune system, your hormonal system. But the most damning thing is what it does to your cognition and to your behavior. Um, so now in Flint, yes. what was it specifically that led you to suspect that there was too much lead in the drinking water? What did you subsequently do? So um, the city of Flint changed their water source from the from the Great Lakes. We are in the middle of the Great Lakes, so you expect us to have safe access to drinking water. Um, so in April of 2014, the city was almost bankrupt. They decided to save money and to stop getting water from Detroit, which is fresh Great Lakes water, and decided to pull water from our local Flint River. And if you grew up in Flint and know the history of our industry, it's not the cleanest river, and, and, you know, some residents say you could actually light a match on that river. So, regardless, um, though, they decided to get water from the Flint River. The Flint River is more corrosive um, than fresh Great Lakes water. And then what was really criminal here is that the necessary corrosion inhibitor, the corrosion control, was not added to that drinking water system. And then the water from the plants, this corrosive water with no corrosion inhibitor, went into an aging water infrastructure. There's been no investment um, in infrastructure in these old cities. Um, and our infrastructure has up to 80% of lead service lines. Most of the plumbing um, in Flint is lead-based, like many um, older cities, because lead was used in plumbing until about 1986. So those, the combination of those three things created a perfect storm for lead to leak out from the plumbing into the drinking water. And then um, in late August, we were hearing um, reports from a Virginia Tech team um, of elevated levels of, of lead in the water. And when pediatricians hear about, you know, lead anywhere, and because we know it's such a potent neurotoxin, you know, we rightly freak out. And that's when we decided to do our research to see what was happening to the lead levels of children. So, Dr. Mona, there had been concerns about the lead levels in the water and the city and the state were like, nah, don't worry about it. And right. then you published your research showing elevated right. blood lead levels in a greater number of Flint children. And then what happened immediately after that, where people like, whoops, my bad. Yeah, so you're right. So right when the water switch happened, people complained about this water. The moms were complaining. The pastors were complaining. It smelled gross. It looked gross. It tasted gross. Everybody was complaining. Um, and the water experts came in. Dr. Edwards, a renowned, like world-renowned corrosion expert, was telling us there's lead in the water. 
Um, but unfortunately, it took evidence that children were being poisoned um, for, for things to really start happening. So the day after we released our findings at a press conference, the city released a lead advisory. Then we had a, uh, um, a public health emergency from the state. And then, you know, it took the, the state a while to um, realize that our findings were consistent with their findings. And then eventually in mid-October, we switched back to the Detroit water system. But in the interim, we aged our pipes uh, probably about 20 years, um, and, um, and we caused this irreversible damage to our children. So if you had not published your findings of elevated blood lead levels, what would be happening now? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there's, there's, there was a lot of people at the right place at the right time who have championed this. And I'm hopeful that, you know, things would have come out a similar way. Um, but, you know, it's hard to predict. I don't have my crystal ball. I can't rewind. Sure. But, um, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that any other pediatrician, I mean, my job as a pediatrician is to take care of the kids in front of me. But my job is also to make sure that every kid has a bright future ahead of them. And our role is to be advocates because kids can't say, hey, give me better gun protections and give me immunizations and all these things. So it is innately our job to be advocates. And I, I would hope that somebody else would have done the same thing. So the county declared a public health emergency at the beginning of October, right after your research came out. The mayor yes. of Flint, Karen Weaver, declared yes. one this week. So right. uh, it's it's not totally clear how the, the different emergency declarations will uh, right. work together. But you know, t- tell us a little about what's what's going on. So the, there are completely different kinds of emergencies. And I think um, there was a lot of confusion. I think people didn't know what to do. They didn't know who could declare a health advisory, who could declare an emergency, what does this mean, what's a disaster, where does FEMA come in. Um, so there was a lot of confusion. Um, and the mayor is a new mayor. She was just, you know, elected to this position. Um, and I think the county um, had some expertise in homeland security and emergency response that finally, you know, came in and said, hey, you know, this, this could be an emergency. This should be an emergency. Yeah, it's not, it's not a natural disaster. It wasn't a hurricane or a flood or, you know, massive wildfires, but it, it is a man-made disaster with as catastrophic consequences. So this qualifies for an emergency. And if we can bring in any resources at this point um, to, to mitigate, to buffer the impact of this exposure and to let people know that, hey, the water is still not safe, um, door-to-door work or whatever public education is needed, um, that will be of great benefit. I got the impression that Mayor Weaver might feel like there just hasn't really been enough attention on this. Yes. Um, yeah. No, there's definitely, yeah. There hasn't been that urgency. Um, there's been this sense of people who work in government, of a, like, I don't know, of a nine-to-five job, and this is not a nine-to-five issue. I haven't slept in three months because when you know the consequences of this exposure, it haunts you. Um, so, you, you know, you, you have to take as many protections as you can um, because the consequences are so damning. I imagine that you probably had uh, parents and children under your care that yeah. that uh, were probably first out the box to protect their kids. What do you do yeah. in a situation uh, just to yeah. protect your child from this kind of exposure? Is it... As I, I, yeah. I, it is obvious, there's obvious solutions like, well, we'll drink bottled water from now on. Yeah. There's no mean feat for people living in poverty to buy bottled water. Exactly. So what, exactly. what can people in this situation do when they're faced with this kind of health crisis and they're waiting for yeah. institutions to swing into place to help out? 
Yeah, you know, our community has been absolutely traumatized. Um, you know, the families come in and, you know, one of my favorite questions I like to ask kids is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then, you know, kids, even before this lead issue, we, you know, just stare at me. We have a 40% poverty rate. Every disparity you can think of, we have in Flint. High unemployment, high crime. Um, you know, we have no, no grocery stores. Like, just every bad thing you can think of. Um, is in Flint. And then we got this lead thing. You know, so if you can think of one thing that could keep a population down, it, it would be lead. Um, so our families already are struggling with so many obstacles to, to make sure that their children succeed. Um, and, and then this is an added burden. So when our families come in, they just have this lack of hope um, that they've been forgotten. And they recognize that this probably never would have happened in a more affluent city of Michigan, but it happened here where they've already been beat down. So so we are trying to instill hope um, in these families. It doesn't mean that every kid is going to have these life-altering consequences. Um, there's things that they can do now. We're sharing, you know, what resources people can access now, um, where they can get filters, um, encouraging breastfeeding, giving them nutrition resources. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that families can do now um, so that we don't see the full consequences of this, of this exposure. But people who've been lead poisoned and who right. will suffer lifetime repercussions don't necessarily know it. Like, so you can't feel your no. IQ going down, right? Exactly, so exactly. Isn't, isn't this possibly a shadow problem that, you know, will never really be accounted exactly. for? Exactly. Uh, lead poisoning is known to be the longest-running and silent epidemic in pediatrics. So, in, you know, in seven years, when a kid gets uh, diagnosed with ADHD, that mom is going to have that guilt. Is it, was this because of the lead, or was this kid always supposed to have ADHD? Um, it will be, you will, we will never be able to pinpoint exactly what the lead caused in the future. Are there any lessons here for people listening to this podcast? Uh, Absolutely. How they can be, how they can, uh, what, what, what can what can ordinary people do to protect themselves or protect their communities from from things like this? So, what do you do in this situation? What does it take yeah. to fight and win? Um, you know what I've learned. You know, you just gotta trust your gut. You know, if something doesn't smell right, something doesn't feel right, it's it's not right. And and you gotta fight. You gotta you gotta be stubborn and persistent. Um, you know, you, you take for granted that in 2015 and for us in the middle of the Great Lakes that we would have had access to safe drinking water. You take for granted that, um, you know, the agencies that are there to protect you are going to protect you. Um, so I think people have to be involved in their communities. Um, they have to, you know, keep their legislators, keep these agencies accountable. Um, you never know when this could happen again. And it could happen again. And it happened in D.C. The same water lead issue happened in D.C. in the early 2000s. And it never should have happened again after that. And then it happened again in Flint. Um, so the EPA is actually looking at the lead and copper rule, which is the crux of all this. Um, and they're actually trying to weaken that rule right now. Um, so I think ordinary people all over can be can help advocate to strengthen that rule um, so that similar issues like this um, don't happen in another community because this was entirely preventable. Um, and, you know, and it, it, we should be taking action to make sure it doesn't happen again. Okay, Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha, we're so glad to have had you on the show today. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
Hey, folks, we're back and we're back with Zach and Lauren. And we've talked about the Republican debate. Now we're going to look ahead to this coming weekend. Weekend. Ooh, Saturday night. Weekend. Who's excited? Uh, maybe you guys don't know this, but this weekend there's going to be a Democratic debate. I know you set your calendar for, you know, staying in and cozying up with the hot chocolate and watching it, you know? Right. So what? why are we having a debate on a Saturday, guys? Why? Well, because uh, the DNC, led by Debbie Wasserman Schultz, wants to ensure that Hillary Clinton gets the nomination. Boom! And then going no right one to the chemtrails the conspiracy. It's, but I mean, it's, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I yeah, think it's yeah. a pretty much well-known, generally fact. accepted yeah, truth. Generally fact-ed. This is know. the thing that kind of has always bothered me about this: is that um, the Republican debate is always such a strange hallucinatory thing to watch because you have Donald Trump completely blowing out norms. You have uh, Ben Carson sometimes falling asleep on stage and the rest of them are, 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 are easily drawn into and out of catfights with one another. Uh, the Democrats have thus far uh, staged a fairly civilized and friendly debate, but they haven't shied, a, shied away from having a debate about big issues, the biggest one being really something every liberal should care about, what the future of the Democratic Party is going to look like. Is it going to be uh, a, a preserved institution governed by Hillary Clinton as someone who tweaks at the edges and fixes things and gets tight efficiency? Or is it going to be completely tossed aside and rebuilt from the rafters by Bernie Sanders? That's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, philosophical debate to have, and no one seems to want voters to watch it. Uh, and what's what's really frightening to me about it is that as a result of the Democratic Party's willful sidelining of their own candidates, um, all these Republican ideas have been in mainstream TV audiences in people's homes uh, for months now. And so the the general political spectrum has shifted more conservative and it makes it harder for whoever the Democratic nominee is and clearly. Clearly, the fix is in here for Hillary Clinton. Um, Clearly. And even if even if the fix wasn't in, I don't think Bernie Sanders is a terribly – is an excellent candidate. Uh, I also don't think Hillary Clinton is an excellent candidate, though. Um, so, You're so an O'Malley guy. It makes it – no, it, it, totally it, it makes it, But it makes it a lot harder – for for the democratic ideas to gain gain traction in the general public because all of these republicans have been have been saying crazy things at people for a long time led by Donald Trump who has been pulling all the candidates in, into into la la land. Well, and also, I mean, this is debate number 3 of 6 debates. That's right, there's only 6 debates. There's only 6 debates. So this is theoretically the halfway point and no one's going to watch it cuz it's on a Saturday night in the middle of holiday season. I mean, absolutely no one is going to tune in and then you're halfway through the democratic debate season. I myself have the night off. I'm going to have dinner with my wife and go shopping. I'm going to have two dogs curled up at my feet while I type furiously. Yeah. I'm I'm probably going to be out. It's not. Yeah. So even we're not watching this debate. Well, we'll hear about it the next one day. Of a, one of us cares, but I'm the one who lives in the studio in my tent. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> with dogs now. Apparently dogs live here now, too. We never see the dogs. They must be ghost dogs. Um but while, we're, Zach's not while we're on the subject of ghost dogs, um, what kind of thing? What, what, Jim Jarmish. Let, let's assume, who would you vote for? Let, let, let's live in a world where this debate is going to be watched by a throng of people. And That's that also the world that you know O'Malley's actually you know polling more than three percent. Right. Right. Yeah. What, what, where do you think these candidates are going in the third debate, or does it even matter? I mean, we've seen Sanders flax continually get their back up about having to answer questions about foreign policy and terrorism because his Sanders flax clearly just want to keep hammering home 
the economy, but you don't get to pick and choose what you talk about a debate, do you? Well, and if if the Republican debate was any sort of indication, this is all going to be about foreign policy and terrorism. So right. I think Bernie Sanders isn't going to be super happy about this debate. Also, I mean, he's going to want to refocus on economic issues and also on Wall Street. And Jason, you and I have had this conversation that Hillary Clinton's line on Wall Street is still very bizarre. Yeah, still, I did it for 9-11. I, it's still very, and like, she's continued to go back to it. Yeah. So, but no, then again, you know, no one will hear it. So I guess, you know, it doesn't matter. The extent to which nobody's watching the Democratic debates is pretty interesting because there are continually opportun- there are continual opportunities for the Republicans at the debates, like the one we watched this week, to take shots at her for things she specifically said at debates. She said Hillary Clinton said that the Libyan intervention was quote smart power at its best. She said yep. that the the Russian reset went awry because Dmitry Medvedev was no longer in power after a while. As if he was ever, <laughs> as if he as ever, if he was any power. ever authentically in power. Right, and not just a proxy for That's for alarming. Putin. I mean, that kind of stuff is what's alarming. And it makes me well, wonder well, so why don't why don't Republicans take the more obvious shots at They're too at, worried but, that but, Donald Trump's going to But for the debate, for the debate, I mean, th- this is what's interesting, okay? So it's probably going to be a foreign policy-focused debate. Bernie Sanders always looks sort of like he's lost in the wilderness, like try, trying to find a magic unicorn to, to bail, to bail him hair. out when, when he's talking about these things. The, the the thing is, and if you watch the most the most recent foreign pol- uh, Democratic Party debate, um, that that's the way Sanders looked. But it was not a clear win for Hillary Clinton because Democratic voters don't actually agree with Hillary Clinton on her on her foreign policy. And because she says stuff she, like that, she's essentially she's essentially a hawkish Republican on foreign policy. And and Bernie Sanders is not. Bernie Sanders doesn't really know what he is. He says I, he, he reverts to being like, oh, I think we should kind of do what Obama's doing, which frankly is what most Democratic voters think. Right. In in the Bush years, Democratic voters were like, well, we're against the war in Iraq. We don't like that. It's bad. And they were right. It was bad. In the Obama years, they're like, well, we like the Obama presidency. We like Obama. Uh, I guess we're cool with whatever he's doing. We're not cool with more nation-building stuff. I mean, the, 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 the national security sort of understanding of the Democratic Party shifts a lot depending on who's in power. Uh, but they don't like Hillary Clinton's you know, pretty consistent John McCain-friendly you know, hawkishness. Uh, and, so, and so even though Hillary Clinton looked like she knew what she was doing last time around— she didn't get any slam dunk wins over Bernie Sanders. Right. Because, because Democrats just don't bites. agree with her. She had some bad sound bites that will probably haunt her later on. Yeah. Lauren, so, if, only there was a, if only there was a blueprint of beating Hillary Clinton in a primary based upon the foreign policy choices she's made. I mean, gosh, I don't even know what that yeah, would look what, like. What? Yeah, what would that be look? Ugh. Could that be possible? I was really busy in 2008. I was covering a uh, financial <laughs> meltdown. What, what was happening in the election then? <laughs> oh, well, there was a financial meltdown. Shocking, I know. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean that's how that's how we have a Barack Obama. He separated himself from Hillary Clinton on this issue. Uh, it's weird that Bernie Sanders talks so much about the mistake Barack Obama made by not keeping his throngs of grassroots supporters together on important decisions. The idea being that you can supersede the will of Congress that is arrayed against you. If you have enough people jamming the phone lines, that may be true. That may be true. He's so focused on that. He doesn't. He doesn't seem to respect what it was that Barack Obama did to win. You know what uh, I think about Bernie Sanders? He does not ever ramp up his understanding of foreign policy Look, enough to beat to to beat uh, to beat 
some magic music just intervene some magic there. music. Well, here's what I think about Bernie Sanders. I, I think that he's a guy who really, really understands economic issues pretty thoroughly. And I, I think he's he's understood economic issues the same way for 30 years, and he, he's very comfortable with, with talking about them. If you ask him anything on the economy, he knows to turn to it. He knows exactly where to do it. You get outside of his comfort zone. He's got nothing. He's got to think really critically about some stuff he's not comfortable with. And then and then he just feels he feels out of his depth. So instead of boning up on that stuff, he just tries to figure out how to pivot back to the stuff that he's comfortable with. And the truth is it's understandable. If it look, it's a smart it's a smart tactic if if you've decided to be a bad candidate. Yeah, <laughs> and, I mean if you decided you don't actually want to win the presidency, then yes, that's great. Just talk about you know, right. that's it. But but if if you want to be a good candidate, you got to bone up on that stuff. And and I and I feel like foreign policy is a weakness for Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primary. And and if if Sanders were a better candidate, he'd be able to hit her on it. But but so far he has not been a good candidate uh, on on that front. He's been very good when you when you talk about the economy. He's got Clinton up up against the ropes over and over and over again on the economy. And frankly, if the economy were weaker, his candidacy would be doing better. The fact that he is doing as badly as he is right now is largely a function of of successes that are. Policy successes that are basically based on Sanders-like prescriptions, sort of weak T versions of what Sanders would do. Well, uh, Zach, you have convinced me that my choice to go out with my wife that night was the correct one. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero with Peter James Callahan, with technical assistance from Christine Canetta, and spiritual guidance from Jedi Knight Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Flint pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna Aticha, Florida voter and Trump fan Steve Trivet, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at the iTunes store at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.